You are listening to the official podcast of Salem Tabernacle in Beacon, New York, a community of people devoted to experiencing life as God meant it to be. All right, you will begin, and um, one of the one of the things I prepared myself for. Thank God, everybody should be happy about this this year was that we were gonna just have some nights and I thought one of them would be the uh, the members meeting, but that we were just gonna have some nights where we still don't have, and it's not as many people as I want here, as much as I can think right now of people I spoke to this week that need to be here for this particular Bible study. And I asked the Lord to give me, give me something that when it happens, instead of being frustrated, there's some sort of a mission behind it. And I told the worship team this on Sunday before service. It's going to be one of my favorite stories of all time. Um, and it's just so healthy. It's so healthy for us to know what Sophia said here and how she said it and why she said it. And the fact that she doesn't remember saying it is even more holy to me. We were watching TV. David. Jacqueline's brother David was here, and she was, Jacqueline was helping David help one of his friends write a resume. A lot of really good people doing a lot of good things there. And I was watching TV with Sophia, and images, kind of graphic images of the earthquake in Turkey came on. And I was okay until the point, and then they were like really showing like parents and their children not alive anymore, and I shut it off. And Sophia very oddly gently says, can you please turn that back on? And like every instinct in me was like, I really don't want you to see this, but like, like I've always said, there's, there's norms and then there's outliers. And something about the way she asked me to turn it back on didn't feel like she wanted to watch something she knew she shouldn't. It was very, I can't explain it. It was very peculiar the way that she asked it. And so I turned it back on and then I started watching her while she was watching the images. So now I, I need, I'm half in the curious and half in the protective stage because I know she's seeing things that are beyond her processing ability. And it's just the same stuff. And I'm watching her. And again, I don't, whenever something Holy Spirit like this happens, you don't have words for it. She was watching it with a smile that's the kind of smile you would see in a movie if like an angel was watching something happen. It was sweet, caring, very just otherworldly. And I said to her at one point, I go, Sophia, would you ever want to be there and help in a situation like this? Hoping she would say no. I never want to leave anywhere unless you're coming down. And she said, um, I don't want to help, <laughs> I don't want to help move the rubble, but I want to be on a worship team that sings over those people. And she bounces out of it right away. And I've seen her do this from time to time. She goes into this very prophetic mode and it's like she's dreaming. And she says things just uh, today in my office, she drew a picture of the sun of 
what a sun shining on the earth, but the sun was in the middle of the earth. It's on the wall and it's on my whiteboard. My uncle's right here. And I said to Sophia, is that the sun? And she goes, it's not the sun. It's the light that Jesus gives, which is the theology behind the transfiguration, right? The transfiguration, like when, when Moses went into the cloud, his face shone because he was in the cloud. When Jesus' face shone, it happened before the cloud. Because Jesus is the light that lights up the cloud to light up Moses' face. And Sophia just, in a moment, is like, it's not the sun, it's Jesus' light. She said that thing about the people, I just want to be on the worship team and sing over them. And I feel like the Holy Spirit said, this is the sentence. Whenever you see something in your family, at your job, uh, pastoring your church this year, whatever it is for anybody here, and you recognize there's people who need to be more healthy. And the way that they're being, or in this case, maybe their absence, makes you feel that feeling of, man, it's just like, I wish they were going to be here. I just felt like in my own mind, it's like, take a moment and just ask the Holy Spirit to sing over them in the rubble of whatever it is that's going on there. And I just thought like, wow, what a great... Just what a, what a great tool to carry all year long, forever, maybe. So I'm going to open in prayer with something similar because we do have people in this church that are going through some stuff. And when you are, sometimes spiritual warfare kicks in and we got to be here for more people than just ourselves. Amen. Right? Amen. Amen. Holy Spirit, we, well, we thank you to have you hover over the rubble of my life. I'm here. I'm prepared, and there's still tons of rubble in my life, and so thank you that you sing over that, and that you you make new meaning of things. You you put stones back together again, and you fix stuff. And so we thank you for that, and we pray that you would do that for us this evening. Teach us, teach us what it means that you bear with us tonight. Teach us what it means that you sigh within yourself over your love for us. And then you bear with us as long as we need you to. And you'll do that forever because you have all the time in the world to bring us to where you want us to be. And we pray for the body of Sam Tabernacle that you would continue to bring healing from the inside out in all of our lives. And that you would continue to bless our children. And Lord, I just pray that parents, especially with young children, would protect them by reprioritizing the house of God. And so we pray that these things would happen over the course of time, not fast, but in a way that it will last. And we pray that if there's a role that we have to play in that, that you would make those opportunities happen. In your name, amen. Amen. All right, so I'm going to read a story, and I'm going to start to explain. I wanted to do one story where somebody was possessed by a demon, and kind of talk about it in a tongue for today. And so I chose, um, I'm preaching on the Transfiguration on Sunday. So if this was a movie, we're going to start after the Transfiguration. And then on Sunday, we'll say 10 years before that, and we'll go backwards. But Jesus is transfigured. He comes down the mountain. And then it's in all three. It's in The story of the Transfiguration is in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's not in John, 
And as Father John Barrett loves to say, uh, the transfiguration of Jesus is not in the Gospel of John, because in the Gospel of John, every story is Jesus transfigured. Every story of the Gospel of John is what it means for Jesus' face to shine. So John's Gospel is what Jesus being transfigured looks like. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John talk about it in its exactitude. So we're going to look at Mark's account of the demon Jesus met after he was transfigured. It says, When they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. That is a key point. There was an argument. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw Jesus, were greatly amazed and ran up and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? Once again, God asks questions, even when he's triggered. And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. I'm pretty sure my parents prayed that spirit over my life many times. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down. And he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. So the child is a little older, and it's been happening to him from childhood. And has often cast him into fire and into water. Another point I want us to think through. Cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, and I love this digression. If you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said to him, if you can, in other words, like, what do you mean if you can? All things are possible for one who believes, a very cryptic statement. Immediately, the father of the child cried out, and I want us to remember that phrase, the father cries out before the demon cries out. Immediately, the father cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, the demon came out. And the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose, which is Mark's word he uses for the resurrection. And he had entered, and when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately. Why did we not cast it out? And we all love the later manuscripts, but I'm going to read it according to the earliest manuscripts. And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. And the earliest manuscripts add, and fasting. The word of the Lord. The most sinister demonic attack, I think, that is happening right now, and this is why I chose this story, is the unstoppable move toward tribal and personal extremism. Extremism. This demon throws the boy into the fire and immediately into the water. This demon brings the child very quickly 
and unstoppably from one extreme directly to the other extreme. And if we're looking for, like we said, exorcist kind of demonic oppression in America, we probably won't find it, but we will find people in their life jumping from fire to water, from hot to cold, from zero to 10, back down to zero, in opinions, in the groups, in their political parties, in their ethnicities, in all of the isms we can say, and in their opinions, in their own home, in our own self. This demon that tosses us into fire and into water and back and forth again is prevalent in the world around us. It's prevalent inside of us simply by living in the conditions we're living in right now, with information, opinion, readily available to us. We engage information, we don't process, we don't talk, we're not disabled the way we used to be, and we fly to extremes. And we love being on the margins because in the middle or in fullness or in balance, you have to have touch. You have to have nuance. You have to know when to hit the gas and when to hit the brake and how fast to take the turn. When you're on the extremes, you just have to either hit the brake all the way or hit the gas all the way. It's easy. Uh, I won't say why, but a long time ago, my brother and I were on a seesaw. And to tell you that that seesaw bounced from one extreme to the other multiple times, almost injuring us and whoever else was around us. We should go on a nap. That would be kind of, I think we would just kind of rest somewhere. The, yeah, if it would, it would snap. Yeah. All right. Anyway. Memory just shot back when I was saying that. I didn't think it was snap. No, it's okay. It says the demon cast him into fire and into water. And when you look up this word cast in the Greek, it means to let go or throw a thing without caring where it falls. And I put in parentheses my own addition opinions to let go or throw an opinion without caring. Where it falls. Can I just, I just need you to know how much authority I have to talk about this right now from failure. Like, this is what I do all the time. I'm probably going to do it a few times tonight. There are probably things that are not here that I'm going to say because I want to give my opinion. And we, it's not wrong to give the opinion, but when we let it go, or throw it without caring where it falls. We can send ourselves and we can send other people into extremes. You have somebody that is on the fence of their faith and you so desperately want to pull them and you know they're one gust of Holy Spirit away from getting brought in and you throw your opinion out there and you tell them, I just got to tell them, I got to tell them the truth. They need to know the truth. And it sends them flying in the other direction untrusting, last time I open up myself to you, bah, 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 and then it sends you flying in a direction of discouragement, frustration, and change the example to fit stuff you're going through, you get it. When we're extreme with our opinion, it makes other people extreme with us, and that, those two things energize itself. When I'm being extreme, and Sal's being extreme back, it doesn't calm itself down. 
Two people being extreme really riles up everything. It just keeps it going. It feeds itself. So let's shoot over quickly to Psalm 139. Always have to go to Psalm 139. It's Jacqueline's favorite psalm. So we're talking about extremes, and I want this whole thing to be balanced by the Father's response to Jesus. I believe, help my unbelief, is a statement of balance. It's not extreme. I believe alone would be an extreme. I don't believe at all would be an extreme. I'm always right would be an extreme. I'm never right and I'm not worthy would be an extreme. But I believe, help my unbelief, is a statement of balance. It's the statement that should anger every one of our conversations that we have with anybody, including ourselves. I believe, help my unbelief, anchors us from flying. It helps us use fire and water, but not be engulfed in the fire or drowning in the water. Does that make sense? Psalm 139, starting in verse 19, I believe. Yes. David says, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. And then listen to the semi-curiosity of David here. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? He's almost asking, do I hate them? Do I hate those who hate you? He's saying he does. But the way that it's the tenses that are given in the Hebrew imply that he's saying it, but he's also questioning himself. And you see why. He says, I hate them with complete hatred. I count them by enemies. And then he says, search me and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me into the way everlasting. So look at what David is saying. He said, I know who my enemies are and I hate them. But in case I shouldn't hate them, search me and know me and see if what I just said is grievous to you. So he's living in the I believe, help my unbelief model. He's saying, I, I, I know who your enemies are, God, and I hate them. But just in case I don't really know who they are or in case I do know who they are, but I'm not viewing them the way you view them, search me. That's a beautiful balance that we need to take with us. I know what's going on in my kid's life, but God, just in case I don't. Or I know exactly what it is that's wrong, and I know exactly what we need to do, but just in case I do know what's wrong, but I don't know exactly what we're supposed to do. That double question, that statement followed by a question, could bring more emotional health to our life and our land than I think most scriptures in the Bible right now. I know... One second. I know, but I might not know. Or I know, but I might not know the way I need to know. Or I do need to confront this, but I might not know the way that I need to confront this. Like, it's always helpful to, like, have the boldness to say, like, we got to do something. But then the humility to say, but the way I'm about to do this, is it maybe not the way you would do it? Yeah. It, it sounds similar to praying a specific prayer. And then you're going to, but Lord, but let your will be done. Yes, I mean, exactly that. That's really good. And G Jesus lives in that balance. Like, if it's your will, let this cup pass. But in case it's not, let your will be done. And he's modeling for us. 
The only way ever that we can pray and have the prayer end well is here's everything I'm thinking, but in case that's my will but not yours, leave me in another way. Right? And you see that balance. You see that balance. Uh, Luke 18, this is a Bible study, Luke 18, 10 to 14. Anybody turning pages besides me? Remember those days? I'm slow at it now. I gotta, my finger muscles are slow from turning. They're good at doing this, but they're not good at doing this. Luke 18, starting in verse 10. Jesus is giving this story. Jesus is telling this parable. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector here. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, I tell you, this man, the second one, went down to his house justified rather than the other. So again, we can live in the I believe only fire, or we can live in the I don't believe, I'm totally depraved, there's nothing good in me, I'm a worm, I don't deserve anything, but for the grace of God, water. Like one is living in this dangerous fire of arrogance, and one is living in this like watery swamp of really self-indulgence and not believing anything Jesus ever said about us, right? There's a balance that is what we said the last two weeks. This, this, uh, the second person there, he knows he's sinful. He knows he needs grace, but he's also, he knows he's worthy to walk into the temple and ask God for it. There's a beautiful, the one guy is like, I'm right and he's totally wrong. I'm fired, he's one. But the second guy is humble. He knows he needs to be forgiven. He knows he needs to be cleansed. But he also knows, I'm going to stand here and God's going to hear me. That's why I came today. He's not home saying, I can't walk in there. Like the, like the centurion, I can't let you walk into my house. I'm not worthy to have you walk into my house. Right? Why did he have to tell Jesus not to walk into his house? Because what was Jesus doing? He was on his way. Jesus didn't agree with that. But he honored and respected him and said, I'll show you how unworthy you are. Your servants don't Right? But there's that balance. We can live in this inflamed view of ourselves, or we can live in this quenched view of ourselves. And both of them do not produce health, they produce extreme. And that demon wants us to bounce between being completely confident in ourselves and being not self aware or being totally demoralized by who we are. And thinking that if I do anything, it's bad. Only if God does it for me, it's good. If I do anything, it's bad. And that language is not the language of it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me language. Jesus doesn't want to power me down and just do stuff through me and make me a puppet. He wants to fill me, meet with himself. Like he says in, in Matthew 5, 14, let men see whose good works, your good works, that they may glorify your father who is in heaven. He says, let them see your good works that they may glorify my Father. I don't want you powered down. I want to fill who you are. 
so that your works and my works become one, like husband and wife. So we get stuck. We get stuck in these back and forths. Yeah, sure. to drink down a sun. And none of them are worthy. 
And Jesus says, this demon can only come out through prayer. So what do we are what do we believe here? The and if you know me, you're gonna know this. This is convicting me, but the spirit of being argumentative is in direct opposition to the spirit of prayer. If somebody says, what is the opposite of praying? The opposite of praying isn't not praying, it's arguing. Because all, everything we do is prayer. Arguing is anti-prayer. It's prayer in the other direction. Debating, arguing, this kind of stuff is the opposite of prayer. So Jesus comes down into an argument. So there's these extremes going on in the culture. There's these extremes going on around him. And this boy is experiencing in his body what is happening sacramentally in this culture of extreme argumentation and debate and back and forth. He's experiencing this demon of what's going on around him. I'm glad this is not being recorded. I have gotten, uh, I have so many examples. I'm in a group me chat with some of my friends from all around the country. And I have to remember which chats I'm in because sometimes I put the wrong information in the wrong chat and that can go south real fast. But one of, one of my buddies who just he chatted up all the time said, man, I enjoyed the Super Bowl, but that halftime show was really demonic. I'm like, okay, why was it demonic? Blah, 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 blah. And I didn't argue. I just wanted to hear, why did this friend of mine think Rihanna's performance was demonic? Here's what struck me pastorally. I've known this person for a long time now, probably three or four years, and we've had a lot of conversations. At no point recently did he bring up the Tyree Nichols shooting as demonic. Never brought up Eunice, the congresswoman from New Jersey who was shot in her car. Never joined the chat and said, that's demonic. Never even brought up Turkey or Syria. Said, this is really demonic what's happening with these earthquakes. Interesting how we start to pick and choose what we think is demonic and the things we don't. Like we become the judge, jury, executioner of what's demonic and what's not. And you start to see the polarization of when your opinion goes unchecked by discipleship and prayer, your opinion starts to sound prophetic. And that fire and water demon has kind of got you in that moment. Because you might be right about some of the things you're seeing on TV as being immoral or demonic or whatever, but your omissions are also witnessing against you of what you're not bringing up or what you might not think is. And as the church, we have to do way better. We can't have tribes and camps where we call this demonic and this gets a free pass, right? Can't do that because that's when our opinion starts to go to the fire and the water, and it's not built up by the fire and the water. It's extinguished and quenched by the fire and the water. So this is all happening around the boy. 
And then the father cries out. And I love it. Look up any concordance, blue letter Bible, whatever you want to use. The word for cry out is always the word that's used when a demon cries out. It means to crow or to, or to shriek. And the first time you hear it in this story is when the father cries out. I believe, help my unbelief. Something in him is released. An extreme that he was living in was released. Life is about this boy changing. And he gives it up. He offers it. He says, help me. And he shrieks and cries out. It's not like the crying out on a Sunday when the Spirit shows up. It was him. This hurts. And he, he yells a nasty yell out and then says, I believe how man And he's the first one to be delivered in, in this story. He's delivered. And then the enchantment breaks. The demon cries out. The disciples come and say, why couldn't we do this? So just before the father cries out, disciples are wired to one extreme. The father's wired to the other extreme. The scribes and Pharisees are wired to another extreme. And then this father cries out, and that wire just snaps over everybody. And the son is delivered, and the disciples, the argument stops, the scribes leave, the disciples come back and say, okay, obviously, we're missing something. And the, the enchantment, the, the magic of the demon is broken. When the father finally says, I don't want to live in the fire or the water. I need them both to engulf my life and change me, heal me. Satan always sends us into too much of what he knows is good for us. How many know the fire of the Holy Spirit is important? How many know that can become emotionalism super fast? How many know... Baptism and liturgy are really important. How many know that can become dead and boring really fast? We need, like we've been saying at Salem since 2017, we want to be a river of life mingled with fire. That balance, that fullness is so vital and so important. There's something interesting that happens here. The Father says, if you are able, heal my son. This is really, really cool, I think. And you can disagree with this, but this is what I think. Jesus says, if you're able, in other words, there's no if with me. And then what does Jesus say next? All things are possible for those the one who believes. So Jesus says, if I'm able, all things are possible for the one who believes. Jesus, I don't think you're saying to the Father, if you believed, it would be possible for you. I think Jesus is saying, if I'm able, all things are possible for the one who believes. I'm the one who believes. I will fill your gap. I will make up everything that you don't have. The minute, and you, you just, you handed me the reins over, and now I can, I'm going to do it. But I needed you to get to this place, Dad. Because if you didn't get to this place, this will just come back again. Jesus is the one who believes. We can read this and literally spend all of our time saying, I guess all these people in my life, especially my own children, who are not delivered from X, Y, and Z, must be because I don't believe and if I can just try harder or somehow seance myself into believing more and get uh, the right prayer. In, on TV, we call it abracadabra. In Christianity, we just about to say the right prayer. I'll say it a million times. Maybe I'm going to yell it louder. Maybe. 
He's like, this is what I'm trying to break over you. I'm the one with this. I'm the one. That's why he never even responds. The Father says, I believe, help my unbelief. Jesus doesn't even respond to it. He doesn't even respond to it. He's healing the boy because he's the one who believes. Surrender. Last part. You're all doing super well. Any questions, comments? Yeah. So what about when he went to his own hometown and performed no miracles there? Because people didn't believe him. I love, I wish I knew off the top of my head which gospel it is, but it says, you know, he couldn't perform any mighty works there because of their unbelief. And then it says, like, on his way out of the city, he healed a few people. And so the reality is, when we say he couldn't, we can't read that like when we can't do something. By, by Jesus not doing miracles there, he's making them see what it is in them that actually needs the miracle. And when you read the story carefully, it's terrifying for us because me and you in a similar environment have heard a pastor talk about this and say, you know, more people, more people have stayed sick or died under my hand than have been healed. And I'm just like, bro, don't pray for me ever then, right? Like, those people knew, they were the ones that knew him from birth. So it's, we tend to think that it's people who don't know him at all that are the reason why he can't perform mighty works, but it's precisely the opposite. It's those of us who know him so well that we get so familiar with him that we don't see the works that he does. We don't see him as a mighty work anymore. And that's what was happening in his hometown. They were no longer seeing him as a mighty work. Isn't this Joseph? Son, isn't this the son of some obscure carpenter? So it was their it was their knowledge of him and how well they knew him that made them unable to see him as a work. But as he went to the outskirts of the city where people didn't know him, he healed. So it's not that he couldn't. Whenever Jesus doesn't heal, it's to show us the thing that needs healing. It's a revelation. Yeah, their their knowledge of him was more than the faith that they had in him. And it, their knowledge of him is what kept them from having faith in him. So one of my you guys know, and now we're all gonna read his book. One of one of my best friends, Dr. Chris Green. First time I ever heard him preach was here. He wore orange pants. It was in 2014. The very, very good day. I'm like, how the heck does somebody wear orange pants so well, if not Dr. Chris Green? And he preached on the story where Paul said, I see in your church an altar to the unknown God. And in, uh, in the Mars Hill sermon, Paul preaches, I'm going to teach you who this unknown God is. And Chris said at the end of that sermon, if Paul came to America, he would have to preach not to the altar of the unknown God, but to the altar of the God we know too well. You would have to preach the opposite here to the God you think you know. Let me show you how you don't know him. How you need to go blind from what you see. So it's a nice tension there. Okay, quickly. 
what does this healing look like? This is important for us, not just for ourselves, but I, I think pastorally, this is the part I want you to hear the most. When somebody is healing from any kind of, when, let me say it this way, whenever somebody's in the process of deliverance, and let's please never forget that phrase, the process of deliverance. Somebody has a moment here and they quote unquote, leave the cigarettes on the altar. They leave and the process of deliverance has begun. When Israel left Egypt, were they free? Oh yeah, the process of learning to stay free has begun. There's a lot left to go, even after the big firework moment of that first freedom, there's a process of deliverance. Nothing on this side of eternity is ever done in the twinkling of an eye until everything is done in the twinkling of an eye. But everything now, our healing, our deliverance, our salvation is still a process. It's still something that is ongoing. <laughs> if salvation was on CNN and we asked Jesus about it, he would say, can't speak to it right now. This investigation is still ongoing. We're still working on it. We'll talk about it when we have all the details. The process of healing. First, when Jesus showed up, the demon threw the boy down. And so step one in the process of healing is disruption. Step one in the process of healing is disruption. You have that, E? Yeah. Disruption. We think disruption is more of the enemy, but sometimes when the presence of God shines on an area of our life that needs healing, a lot of bad feelings come up, and we cloister up and pull back and start rebuking the work of God in our life. Sometimes you'll go through years of this disruption because there's deep, 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 deep roots that Jesus is pulling up slowly. So Jesus shows up and the demon throws the boy down. There's disruption. That's the beginning of healing, though. Nastiness starts to come out. You start to open up. You get vulnerable. You start to feel things that you've been repressing. Things are unlocked that your body is cleansing from. And it feels more like attack. But odds are, you're the most attacked when you're feeling great about stuff you shouldn't be. When you start feeling bad, and it's like, I don't know who I am, it's gross, I feel off, I haven't felt good, I haven't slept, that could be Jesus starting to churn all the toxins that are now going to come out. Spiritual breath is going to be bad for a little while because all these toxins are coming out. Then deliverance, the demon comes out. So this disruption, the volcano of deliverance is starting to rumble, there's smoke, boom! There's deliverance. And then everybody thought the boy was dead. How could that be? He was just delivered. And Jesus is showing us when you're when you have somebody you've been praying for, this process could take 15 minutes or 75 years. But you might think. They were, how do they, they look less now than they ever looked before. It's the process of deliverance. It takes you, it takes others through a rigorous moment where 
the evil in me acts up. I get delivered. I have that epiphany. I make that decision, and it's like everything falls apart. I'm despondent. I'm depressed. What's going on? And then Jesus touches the arm and says, "Arise." We can't interrupt somebody's process of deliverance. One of the worst things that we've adopted is this idea that salvation happens immediately. It is an ongoing investigation. We become aware in a moment of the salvation that God is always working in us. We become aware of what's happening in us long after the process has started. Us becoming aware of Christ is itself part of the healing that's already been taking place. So if you're praying for somebody, if you're noticing that somebody needs a lot of healing, you need to discern, and, 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 and again, in a relationship of discipleship, you need to discern it's possible, like I'm working with a couple of people in chat church right now that have like opened up stuff from the past. And they're texting me, Pastor, this is getting worse. I feel I feel more depressed than when I came to talk to you. I know. Because you're you just moved some rugs and you opened up some trap doors, and Jesus is descending you into the abyss of memories that you've locked up a long time ago. And as those skeletons come up, it is very traumatic. Spring cleaning is gross. Moving the couch to vacuum, icky. The back of the fridge. Like, it's nasty to clean. It doesn't feel clean right away, especially when you're talking about when you get delivered or you become a new creation, God doesn't take your past and say, we never have to go back there. He's like, now that you're saved, let's go. Let's take a trip down memory lane because all of that is who you are. It's who you are. That's what we're going to be talking about on Saturday. Your past is something that God doesn't erase because he would make you half alive if he did. It's who you are. If the past erased after Jesus saved you, then Jesus would have no scars on his body on Easter Sunday. And Good Friday wouldn't be something we could remember because it'd be gone. It'd be gone Friday. <laughs> his salvation doesn't change our past. It converts the meaning of it. It converts the it converts the use of it. It changes what it does. Going back there is a gift because back there we start to see the new city that he's building, the new garden that he's building, right? Okay. Final point. And then we close. A little couple of verses. Final point. And we know. Everybody take a deep breath. We're going to read some verses. Final point. Sword drill. Exodus 24. You can only do this if you have a Bible. Exodus 24 there, starting in verse 15. Exodus, oh, I did it again. 32, I'm not there yet. There, here we go. Moses is transfigured himself differently than Jesus, and he receives the whole law. And then he comes down. And he's so excited because this is going to be great. And everybody's dancing naked around a golden calf. I, I leave for five minutes. And here's what it says. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides. 
on the front and on the back they were written the tablets were the work of god and the writing was the writing of god engraved on the tablets when joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted he said to moses there is noise of war in the camp but he said it is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of cries to beat but the sound of singing that i hear and as soon as he came near the camp and saw the camp and the dancing Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the cap. This is so key. Think of the story we just read about Jesus. He took the cap that they had made and burned it with, and ground it to powder and scattered it on them, and made the people of Israel drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And like Sophia, he lies. And Aaron said, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people that they are set on evil. For they said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. As this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what's become of him. So I said to them, let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this cat. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the, the to the derision of their enemies, which is a lot like the disciples were doing at the foot of the mountain in our story. Then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. Sons of Levi, sorry to cover his ears, and the sons of Levi, according to the word of the Moses, and they did. And that day, about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing on you this day. Holy Lord, do we have some questions? Moses comes down with the grace of God in his hands, throws the grace of God down onto the ground, and then acts with no grace. And he uses violence to overcome evil. And for the rest of the Bible, we see that that didn't work at all. Jesus is the true and better Moses. He comes down his mountain after the transfiguration. And he sees that his disciples have let the people break loose. And his disciples can't deal with evil any more than the Israelites couldn't deal with evil. Moses came down and saw the idol of the golden calf, and Jesus came down and saw the idol of performance in his disciples. And evil was winning, debates were happening, and a child was suffering. And Jesus comes down. Moses throws the law on the ground and breaks it and has people killed. Jesus comes down and says, he takes that angry side of Moses, and then he defeats it and says, how long am I to bear with you? I'm not gonna throw you down. I'm not going to throw the law on the ground and break it over you. I'm going to die. You're not gonna kill your neighbor. For this i'm not going to throw the oracles of god on the ground and shatter them for this two minutes ago jesus was standing not opposed but in continuity with israel on the mount of transfiguration 
accepting Moses and Elijah into himself, bringing them into the story of what he's doing, not superseding them, but including them in the story, in their story, finishing their story with them. He comes down the mountain and he doesn't throw stones of the law at us. Like I said on Sunday, he turns stone into bread and he takes the stone of the law and turns it into the bread of grace and he offers it to us. And that is how we handle people who are being attacked and struggling. And that is the help we need when we're being attacked and struggling. We don't need people slicing at us. We need people who will bear with us. We don't need people who will throw tablets in front of our face and say, this is what you're doing wrong. We need people who will give us bread. Walk through it with us. Be there while we're convulsing. Be there while we're crying out. Be there while we're lying dead. And be there to pick us up and take us a little further on down the road. The number one thing that Satan wants people to do is see evil as wrong but use his methods to get rid of it. Like, Jesus is the true and better David who doesn't use violence to destroy Goliath, but offers himself to the Lord to destroy evil. He doesn't need to do what David has to do to win. He does something that he's more than a conqueror. David is a conqueror because he killed Jesus is a con more than a conqueror because he laid down his life. That's what defeats evil. The trick we think is to call evil good, but what Satan wants is for us to see things that are wrong and then use his weapons of accusation and judgment and violence to rid the wrong. Bear with people. Sit with them through the process of healing. Pray, don't argue. This is how Satan is defeated. Questions? Thoughts? Anybody need an exorcism? <laughs> I might. Nice. Good? Thanks. Please. Couple minutes. Um, how do you feel when someone with the other person is very I mean, loaded, big, it depends, I don't know, like, was something heinous done, like, if you're the person who had it done to you? Yeah. Okay. After, okay. Right. Which has really done, and you have to try to be partial. But it's hard doing that when you know the sign, the type of sign. It's hard to be not fire or not. It's hard to be when that. How do you find that? 
Well, like you don't find that middle, like on your own, obviously. Right. Right. I mean, I think that's that's one of one of the main one of the main overriding parts of the story is that Jesus didn't take Peter with him. He took Peter, James, and John, and he didn't leave, you know, Matthew down there. He left the other nine down there, right? And in the ex in the Exodus story, when Moses went up the mountain, he took Joshua and he left leaders down there. I mean, like. There's this idea that whenever God is bringing people into all these different places, he's never, ever leaving them by themselves to do this work. So even right when, when, when the animals came out to the ark, they came out to the ark two by two. And in Matthew, when Jesus sends out his disciples, he sends them out two by two, right? Because they're bringing new creation, right? And they're leaving the ark himself and they're bringing new creation. Like it's always a togetherness thing. Like the church is responsible for bringing healing to the world, but no individual in the church is responsible for bringing it on their own. And so if you're ever in a situation, and, and I am involved in this situation too with, with what I do, and I know, Ron, you've been in this situation, S, you've been in a situation where you have one role to play in a person's life, but you know, like, you know other things that have happened, but you can only deal with them on this one level. It's that you need to have the training, you need to have the people in your life, you need to have, you know, built up in you the acumen to be able to toe that line. I mean, it's it's a line that is very, very, very difficult to tell. Again, I have to speak generally because I don't know the specifics of what you're what you're saying, but never by yourself. Though you we don't find that strength by ourselves. God love God has gifted us with weakness that He's put the strength in another person. Like there's strength that God has for me that is in my brother. And God will never let me have it. Because I would do it, I would use it by myself and surely use it the wrong way. So then he adds that strength to me, but then God knows the two of us by ourselves is a problem. So he like brings other people into our life. And then there's this whole community keeping me and Frankie from losing our minds. Says the devil is the manifestation of what is happening to the spirit. So, what you, what you meant by that is because disciples were being extremely and disciples were being extremely and following the And the, without getting into all the background, I mean, they were all, they were in an intensely extreme moment culturally, too, where they were, you know, Roman occupation. Uh, revolts that were just recently like quelched. That's why Barabbas is in prison. You know, like there's there's a lot of extremism going on there. And you know, I believe that the story is told the way it's told to show that what's going on around is what's going on in the child. Uh, it, it's in the Christmas story too, and it said like it says that Herod was agitated and all Jerusalem with him. Like whatever's going on in the leaders is like making its way down into the people almost all the time. Yeah. So when a leader says fake news, everybody stops believing everything they hear kind of thing. So like what, what's happening up there, it, it trickles its way down. Like back in the day, I was taught that when you're under authority, you get the accumulation of everything that's poured down. That's a good thing. The other problem about being under authority and being the authorities when I'm in authority, everybody gets what's dripping down, right? So it's great if it's blessing, 
But you know, if, if you're in a season where you're like always one minute away from a panic attack, everybody around you is going to be living that way too, right? And it's it's important for us to know that, like especially with our youngest ones, they will take on the energy of what is happening around them all the time. And in a way that isn't just accusing us; it's revealing us to us and helping us see it and pivot and change. So the, the, what was going on in that child was a revelation to the disciples, the Pharisees, the father of what's happening in them. And the father caught wind of it. Father realized it first. And the minute he realized it, it starts to unravel. And it unravels all this all the way down to the book. Unravels there too. Yeah. It starts with walking around with the prayer, I believe, help my unbelief. I believe I see what is wrong, but help where I might not be seeing it. I believe I see what we're supposed to do here, but help, maybe maybe that's not the way we're supposed to handle it. Like for, all, I think, the two extreme, the fire and water of churches right now, the fire churches are churches that just go full steam ahead. They have it bracketed out so nicely. They know exactly what is evil. They know exactly what is wrong. They know everything is everybody's choice. And so, bang, they just go at it and start going, going, going. And they are destroying people's lives and are going to answer for it. But then there's other churches, probably in reaction to that, that are doing absolutely nothing. They're just existing. Right? We need churches that are not in the middle, churches that are willing to go places that could bring a backlash. But we have to go with the curiosity and the reality of, I think I know what's wrong here. So, like I've said this many, many times, there may be a person who has a particular lifestyle that if you cookie cut and cherry pick a scripture, you can tell them that they're wrong. And so you could go down that road and say, there's this verse that says you're wrong, so change right now. And they say, I can't, and then they leave, and Jesus is probably more upset with us than they are with them. So there may be moments where we have to say, this is not right, and hold our ground. And that's going to have a kind of backlash. 
There may be other times that I'm going to say right now in this moment, this is more of what it is, not only, but more of what it is. We have to be willing to allow more things here. And we're going to get backlash from the Christian community. Like Peter was afraid to do when he was sitting with the Gentiles and the Jews showed up and he got away from the table. And Paul like yanks him right back to the table. He's like, don't you dare do that. So there's a lot of ways to get your head cut off these days, right? I think right now a lot of martyrdom is happening because churches are trying to be faithful to the life of Jesus and other Christians and churches don't want us sitting with tax collectors and sinners like Jesus and we're getting martyred by our own people. I think a lot of Christian martyrdom right now spiritually, luckily in this country, not literally spiritually, is happening at the hands of aggressive extremist Christian Christianity. Like we we need to love in a way. Jesus was killed by believing people for who he was accepting and the way that he was calling himself a king. It was a threat to Rome because he was calling himself a king. He was a threat to God's chosen people because he was breaking rules, moral Torah rules, if it meant doing some work on the Sabbath by healing somebody, and then telling them to take up their bed and sin. Pick up your mat, clean it up, fold it, break the Sabbath, and go. Oh, you're going to get martyred both ways. That's true. Uh, George, then ask. Oh, sorry, sorry to share about a young boy in the pod and sort of kind of getting to know It's amazing. A lot of times, the uh, a lot of times, the person is extremely you're interacting with that person, you've got to go a long way with that person. Yes. 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 All right. So everybody hears what uh, George just said. You know, in these stories we have, because thank God we have trouble reading as it is. He didn't want the Bible to be 68 million pages long. A lot of these stories happen so fast. Where like Jesus enters this the extremism of the argument and the extreme desperation of the father and he like he just does his thing real fast that's not to communicate that that's how fast it happens with us it's to show us what our whole life is meant to be in its entirety and so we have to he, he entered the life he entered it with what are you arguing about he enters with a question what are you arguing about how long has this been happening to me? Bring the boy to me, right? Like he's showing us the way that we're meant to live. He asks one question because we're supposed to ask 30 over the course of 10 years. Right? So we can't we can't mistake the moments in the Bible for the actual time things are supposed to happen here. Jesus he lived on this earth in some weird ways, less time than we built, right? And so in, in one form in one way. And so, yes, this is likely a lifelong process in a lot of cases not the the 
the entering the extreme, and then the process of the healing. Both of those are long processes. One day we will know that it happened in the twinkling of an eye. But until then, while we're while time is still taking from us, long haul. Sewing, waiting, reaping. That's why we always get excited when Steph plays that song. Because that we get. <laughs> we always get excited when we sing a song or hear a verse. We understand. We totally get. We've been praying. We've been waiting. Now we're crying. <laughs> we, we totally understand that. It's the story of our life. I don't know. I think it's a process of filtering also. Yeah. Um. Because over the past, I'm going to try to be transparent. Over the past few weeks since the incident happened in Memphis, I was angry, whatever. Uh, and I was like, so like, really, you know, law enforcement, no, like, yada, yada, they only want to kill black men. You know, this is my mindset. You know, don't be BWI uh, driving white black. And I had an opportunity this past weekend to see many cops in my family, about several. Yeah. And there are about 12 cops, and one of them happens to be a Caucasian and was high on the roster in the police department. The love and the love, and I felt really guilty and convicted because I was angry at anybody who had a badge the past few weeks because I felt they were like this authoritative and what have you, but I'm coming to see we are the church. If I'm supposed to be this way, I'm supposed to be, you know, like open and not closed. And if I would have dealt with him in a closed manner this past weekend, I would have really, you know, like dealt with the bottle of Johnny Walker Blue better, you know, to be honest, uh, because the love and the forgiveness that he had for several family members, he taught me. And we have to realize um, when we hear certain situations, we no longer watch MSNBC or C-SPAN and what have you, because Fox tell you any day now you're going to hell CNN tell you, you may be okay. MSNBC said, I have entitlements to feel the way I do and commit several acts against people. So it's a filtering process we have to take ourselves through. And all that I have is prayer and forgiveness. You know, I cannot offer anything else. So, well, this, you need to do this and you need to do that and you need to do that because we don't know where a person is coming from. We don't understand their culture or the socialization and stuff. So as a church, we not, I mean, yeah, they're pimps in the pulpit. Don't get me, you know, like saying, you know, like we want your money and if you don't do this, I mean, exactly what have you. We have to filter out what is scripture saying? And how are we going to deal with it? How we see ourselves with scripture and dealing with this process. That's the only thing that's left. You know? I mean, it's amazing to hear you say this because, you know, it wasn't too long ago we were talking about um, holy ground 
being honest friend, taking the shoes of dishonesty off and standing on the truth of what's happening inside of us. And so, first of all, I think I think it's incredible leadership on your end and very self-aware to be able to be honest with our anger. It's one of the most, it's actually one of the most difficult things to be honest with is our anger. And in a small case, rightfully and understandably, you get you get mad at the badge in that situation. Like, how many more images of this do we need to see? Right? You get, and then you meet somebody in your family who's a good person and they're a police officer. And in that moment, you have to look at them and say, I want to believe you, help my unbelief. Like you, you can't deny the anger you're feeling, but you also can't let it rule you. So it's, I believe, help my own belief. The desire to want to believe that you can be good is there. The trauma of thinking I'll never be able to believe it is there. I believe, help my own belief. We have to lead people in that prayer. We can't get them to see something differently. We have to lead them in the prayer of I believe, help my own belief. A person who's very, very, very close to me and my wife is stuck right now on why do all these terrible, evil things happen if God is so good? And they're just, they're trapped there now for years and years and years. And my, my simple inclination is to show her some really, really good arguments and prove it wrong in all these philosophical ways. What she needs is to be able to say, I believe, help my unbelief. And in every situation, one of those is going to be easier to say than the other. In her case, it's going to be easy to say, I don't believe. Help me to. Right? It's going to be easy to say the unbelief part, hard to say the I believe part. Other times, we're so confident in our opinion, it's easy to say I believe. It's hard to say help my unbelief. How could I possibly be seeing this the wrong way? So the Bible says, easily, very easy, right? And so I think that's a fantastic story. And I think it's great that you can be honest like that with your anger. But what you said about filtering out, knowing yourself, being self-aware, having other people speak to you, like that's, that's the path to healing. You've been that path for thousands of people, so. That's why whenever you two have a party, 9,000 people show up to it, and that wasn't everybody on the list. Anything else? Ronald. Just a quick thing. I agree with everything that you said. So the real question comes down to, okay, so now we know all of this. So what are we supposed to do? And how do we go about doing it? Right? Because ultimately, that's the big question. And I'm, I'm not like a Bible scholar, and I don't know a whole bunch of verses, but there's two that I do know. Matthew 22, 37 and 40. Love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. So based on everything that you said, if I love you, if I love God, and if I love you, that means by definition, there's going to be certain things that I do and that I don't do. If you really love somebody, you're not going to be judgmental. Now, we're all sinners, so we all make mistakes. But the bottom line is, I'm going to modify all that opinion that I might have in my head because I love you. And if I love you, then I'm going to take into account, may not be ready to hear this, might be dealing with something 
over there. It might be something from the past. It might be your culture. It might be your gender. It could be any number of things, but I'm going to deal with you a little different. And then Luke 9, verses 1 and 2. Jesus called the disciples together, gave them authority over demons, as we're talking about spiritual warfare. He gave them authority over all demonic activity, and he sent them out. That's what he did. And why did he do that? He sent us out to proclaim the kingdom and to heal. There's two things, proclaim the kingdom and to heal. That means I'm not supposed to be beating you over the head. I'm supposed to be a proclaimer. It also doesn't mean I get my bullhorn, I run up on people's ears and shout it in their ear, but I'm supposed to proclaim. We're supposed to be living epistles. So that means I use my mouth sometimes, and sometimes I don't use my mouth. But I'm basically trying to proclaim this kingdom and to heal people. And healing, I'm picking up on what Ezra said about all the news channels and that, that, and this is, the bottom line is that, well, we are body, soul, and spirit. So what I'm supposed to be doing is doing everything I can because I love you, like I said in Matthew, to help you to heal. It's supposed to be about getting you to be better, not getting you to be healthy as opposed to being better. I'm going to correct myself because the object is for us to, the whole salvation piece is for us to, when we move on into eternity, we're going to be healed. We're going to be healthy. So we're supposed to be trying to help each other get as healthy as possible while we do. You said it in three minutes. I said it in 90. They're going to like you better than me. Let's stand to our feet and pray. Lord Jesus, we believe. Help our unbelief. In your name we pray. And everybody said, Amen. Thanks for listening to the Salem Tabernacle Podcast. For more information about us, including gathering times and our location, check us out online at salemtabernacle.com.